If you'd stand with me out of respect for the word of the Lord, I'd appreciate it. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, you know, say that with me, you know. Look at your neighbor and say that this morning. Pastor Corey, you know. Yeah, you know. We say that to people, you know. Sometimes it's a good you know. Sometimes it's a you know. But it's like the apostle Luke is writing here and he's going, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, heart stop. If you remember, and I'm sure you do, earlier, Jesus had said to the church, he said, I want you to stay until the Holy Spirit has come upon you with power to be my witnesses, to, to live a life reflective of how Christ lived for us. You know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Join me in prayer this morning. Father, it is with a joyous heart that we come to worship you on this snowy day in Michigan. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing goodness and your amazing grace to us. We ask you, Lord, that you would remove any hindrances that we might have to hearing the word of the Lord. Lord, help us to lay aside and every distraction and to focus totally upon what you would say to us through this message this morning, I pray, in the precious and the holy name of Jesus. And then as we listen, let us be transformed And let us go out in the power, the might, and the love of Jesus Christ himself that we might do good as well. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6 and verse 18, Paul is writing to a young pastor. He's writing to this pastor and he says, I want you to teach the church to do good. And that's always been kind of an interesting comment that Paul made to Timothy. Do good. I mean, as parents, we teach our children while they're growing up to do good. And we know that oftentimes that they don't do good. And so we correct them and we teach them discipline so that they learn how to live a good life. We teach them about goodness and we teach them about morality And now here the Apostle Paul is telling a pastor to tell a church, you're going to have to teach people how to use, and the context would be to use their time, their talent, their treasure, and their testimony or their life story to do good. One of my favorite verses, and I refer to it the first Sunday of every year, I I believe I'm can say that without any hesitation, that the first Sunday of every year that I preach the gospel, I always go back to Genesis 131, where God looked at everything he created and said it was very good. I mean, imagine a world that was total goodness. That was the world Adam and Eve were living in. They were living in a, a beautiful world. They were living in a perfect world. They were living in a world of perfect provision and abundance and potential It was very good, and God said of Adam and Eve that they were very good. I mean, that was just the way God saw the world. You and I don't know what that means because we've never lived in a world without sin. We've never lived in a world without violence or without crime or conflict. We've never lived in a world without hurt and betrayal and anger. 
But the world that Adam and Eve were in, it was very good. And after the service during our Christmas season, one man came up to me, he was uh, visiting here at the church, and he said, you know, I never thought about that until you said it in the service this evening that there was no animals killing animals. There was no violence until Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that the crisis that sin brought in, you know what happened there. Your Bible readers yourself, your Bible students, that sin brought a crisis into the world. And then in that crisis... God made a promise that his son would come. And the story of his life is that Jesus not only went about preaching the gospel, but he went out doing good. That Jesus, as we just took the communion, it was a reminder to us that he died for our sins, shed his perfect sinless blood for us that we might be redeemed from sin, and then was raised again on the third day. And because of that, the Holy Spirit can come and live in us as we put our faith in Christ, and he empowers us to do good. When I'm traveling, I'm not an extrovert, so when I'm traveling, there will be those occasions when the Holy Spirit will just prompt me. I mean, I know it's the Holy Spirit because it's not something I would normally do. It doesn't happen because I feel guilty that I should talk to this person. It doesn't happen because I'm afraid. It just, this sense, you need to speak to this person. And the way I bridge that conversation is a little different than I bridge conversations when people start a conversation with me. I'll bridge that conversation by introducing myself, and uh, then I will ask them, you know, what do you do for a living, or what did you do for a living if I think they're retired? And people will always tell me what they did, and then they will say to me, what do you do? And this is when I tell people I'm a pastor. And the reason I will tell them that if they ask me at first is because immediately people's countenance change, and they get religious, and I just try to just... To, to kind of hold my powder, so to speak. But when I ask them, and I can see there's that change immediately comes that when I'm a pastor, what I'll do is I'll say, tell me what you think about Jesus. I never ask about the church. I never ask about religion. But I said, tell me what you think about Jesus. And I find people really like Jesus. They love Jesus. And as they talk to me about Jesus, they tell me about how good Jesus was, how loving Jesus was, how forgiving Jesus was. And many times I've heard this, if the church was more like Jesus, I would really love the church. And I have to admit sometimes that's really true. It should be our endeavor. It's the Holy Spirit's work in us to make us more like Christ. Well, when we talk about Jesus being good, I think you need to remember something. Jesus was good, but Jesus was good because he's God. God is good. God is love. It's the essence of God to be good. It's the essence of God to love because God is good. When you think of holiness, God is love and God is good. All of that comes out of his holiness. And you say, what is holiness like? It's that fruit of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control that God blesses us with when we are born again. Look at how Jesus did this. To women who were treated as possessions, if I was alive in the days of the Bible, my wife would have just belonged to me the way my car belongs to me. A good Jew would have said, Lord, I thank you that you didn't create me a, a donkey. I thank you that you didn't create me a dog. I thank you didn't create me a woman. I mean, that's how women were treated. They were just treated like property. 
In the world that was around the Jewish people, it was the same way. Women were treated with disdain and respect, but Jesus loved them. Jesus welcomed them. Jesus gave them dignity and partnership in the gospel, and it was a shocking thing when the apostle Paul would write later to the church. He'd say, there is no difference. There is no male or female in the body of Christ. We all have the same value and worth. The poor, during we just came through the Christmas season, and I'm sure most of you watched the Christmas Carol, one of the movies about the Christmas Carol, or you reread the Christmas Carol. But do you remember what Scrooge said about the poor in the Christmas Carol? Do you remember when they were asking for alms and they said to him, but what about the poor? They're, you know, they're going to have to go into uh, the poorhouse or to jail or something. And, and uh, Scrooge said to them, he says, you know, let them go there. They go, but many of them would rather die than to go there. They're, the conditions were so horrible. So Scrooge reflected the same values that people treated the poor with. He says, let them die and let's reduce the surplus population. I mean, the poor were treated with such disrespect, but Jesus treated them with honor. Jesus gave them dignity. Jesus showed them that they were worth so much in the eyes of God. And even good Jewish people that should have known better, because the Old Testament is full with how we should be compassionate and loving and kind to the poor. The sick, the sick, Jesus healed them. I could go on the hungry, Jesus fed them. Those that were barred from God by religious traditions. If you haven't watched The Chosen yet, one of my favorite scenes is, is when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. An immoral woman, a woman who's had <clears throat> multiple relationships. And, and there Jesus encounters her, saves her, and her life has changed. If you remember later, Jesus comes with his disciples to stay in her husband and her home. And, and I know this is reading between the lines, but the, you know this is how Jesus freed us even from superstitions there in the, in the script. Uh, one of them says, well, this particular room we think is haunted. And Jesus goes, oh, I'll take that one. Because he showed us we don't have to be afraid of anything. We're not trapped by superstitions. That's what the goodness of Jesus did. Jesus showed us that we all have a place in the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 21 and verse 25, look at this with me if you would. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. That's a powerful and dramatic statement. Would you read that out loud with me? It's up on the screen this morning. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Family, I have volumes of journals that I have written notebooks, hardback books, electronic journals, and yet my basement is able well to contain the journals that I've written through all the decades of my life. They're there. And yet, the whole world could not contain the good things, the miracles that Jesus did in his very brief life before he was crucified for our sins. So this series that we're going to be in, that we're calling Do Good. We're not talking about being do-gooders or thinking we're better than other people or holier than thou. But we're going to talk about living life as Jesus wanted us to live to do good. Because, look at me, this is important. Our mission statement that says we celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. Passionate followers of Christ do good wherever they go. We just can't help but do good. 
And so I've asked myself some really heavy-duty questions in getting ready for this. I've taken I don't know how many thousands overseas on missions trips. And yet when those missionaries from Ohio were kidnapped in Haiti and held against their will for so many weeks, I sat there thinking, how does this change? Because short-term missions trips have brought so many blessings and so much good to the nation of Haiti. As a matter of fact, my wife's parents' first missions trip when they were young was to go to Haiti and to minister in Haiti. And now with gangs controlling the island and, and it's just seemed that anarchy seems to reign, what does it look like for us to do good in the world? What does it look like to do good in a world where the global economy is so interconnected and what happens in a little nation can affect great nations? What happens with a small economy can affect large economies because how interconnected the global world is now. What's happening is our money changes and, and it looks like we're moving more and more to a cashless system as the Bible has prophesied in times past. What's going to look like to do good? What's it going to do? What's it look like to do good when life is busier than ever? And what I'm going to say this morning may be just a little bit surprising, but it's not a complaint. So it's important you listen to me well. Because there, early this morning, I was up and I was thinking about the message and praying about the message. And I know you're busy. I know your lives are full. You have work. You have family obligations, ministry obligations at the church. There's so much going on. We're busier now than ever. I am so blessed because I love what I do. I've always enjoyed what I do. And yet this morning, a thought crossed my mind that's never crossed my mind ever, ever, ever. I'm standing in front of the stove. I'm getting coffee. And this thought crossed my mind. I don't know what it's like to take a vacation without doing some work. Because my family has always been gracious and kind to me to let me get up early in the morning and I study and I pray because Sunday's always coming. I've had those times where I've had to fly back because of an emergency or a crisis or something that's happened and leave my family behind and then turn around and, and fly back. Christmas days where I've had to go to the hospital. And it's not a complaint. Please, but I, I want you to know, I know what it means to live life with a full and demanding schedule. And I'll never tell you that I'm busy, but I know that you're busy and I know that life has a lot of demands. And these devices that were supposed to make our lives simpler, haven't they made our lives a little more complicated? We're busier than ever because we're always connected to everybody. So how is it, and this is the question I've asked myself, in a world of global terror, in a world where the economy is changing faster than I've ever seen it change in my lifetime, and I've been in nations where the economy has collapsed overnight, in a world where we're busier than ever, how do we do good to the people that cross our path? Because whoever crossed the path of Jesus was blessed. And even the early church, whoever crossed their paths were blessed. Well, let's take a careful look at it. First of all, it requires boldness to do good. It requires an incredible, holy boldness to do good in life. I mean, you've got to have this sense of this boldness like a lion because not everybody appreciates your doing good. Not everybody is thoughtful about your doing good. And so it requires this boldness to follow the way of Jesus. I mean, you've got to give honest, you've got to give careful evaluation to what it means 
to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're listening this morning online or on Facebook or YouTube or something like that, Jesus tells us before you even decide to follow me, you need to give careful consideration. And he uses the example of a man. He says, what one of you that before you begin to build a tower, let's say you're going to build a grain tower, you're going to build a watchtower. He says, what one of you before you begin to build, you don't sit down and estimate the cost and count the cost because what a waste of money to start building and only get halfway. And because you couldn't get the roof on or you couldn't finish the project, it eventually collapses and deteriorates. That's the reason it's important that you build your life on a good foundation. And to follow Jesus, it goes on to tell us, you've got to be willing, this is in Luke 14, if you want to look at it later, you've got to be willing to give up everything you own. You've got to be willing to give it all up. Now, I've had two funerals this last week, and one night in my study, somebody came to me and, and said to me, says, what did Jesus mean when he says, you can't follow me if you don't hate your parents or you don't hate your family? It's a great question. It comes right out of this passage of Luke 14. I says, it doesn't mean hate, like I would say, you know, I hate murder or I hate uh, incest or something like that. It doesn't mean that. It means that Jesus is such a priority in your life that everything else pales in your life in comparison to your love for Jesus. And they still weren't getting it. I said, let me see if I can illustrate it like this. I said, I love my wife so much. Everybody knows I love my wife. Everybody knows I am absolutely bananas about Becky. But I said, I don't even entertain a glance from another woman when it comes to my wife. I go, I can see the light turn on. I said, let me give you another example. I love our church. I love Woodland Church. I don't even entertain calls that come to me from other churches or ministries when they come. I just don't do it. I love this church. I pastor this church. This is where God's called Becky and I. I said, but let me put it to you like this. Do you love your job so much that if you got called to a better paying position and you got a promotion and you're going to get a really good raise and it would do your, would you give up your job? He goes, heck yeah, I'd give up my job. I go, that means that you would despise your job in order to take the new job. The way we love Jesus is the way I love Becky. It's the way I love this church. Everything else pales in comparison to my love. Jesus is not saying, I want you to go just give it all away and go to the poorhouse. Jesus is saying that whatever you have in life, your family, your time, your talent, your treasure, if you're going to follow him, you give it to him. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. And you see, at times, that means we have to obey. That means there have been times when people have refused to speak to me again because I've taken a stand for biblical marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman. That means at times it is cost because you follow God's call. If you remember the Strong family that was here, they retired. She was a school teacher. He worked for a major grocery company. And when they retired, they were expecting a comfortable retirement with their grandchildren and their children, and life looked good. And God called them to Africa, and now they're serving in Africa the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. But that's what obedience means. And it was hard for them to go. Becky and I were having dinner with them one night night and in Dearborn, and we were talking about the costs and the tears missing their children, but they obeyed Christ, and their family released them to go. You see, we don't always know what it means when we give our lives to Christ, what the, call, what the cost is going to be, but we know we love Jesus so much 
that that cost is nothing compared to the honor and the love we have of serving Christ. Now that I've told you that, if you're counting the cost, you realize that it requires boldness to do good. It requires boldness to follow the call of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. Look at your neighbor this morning and say, you're a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. I mean, think about that. That's a beautiful word, masterpiece. Have you ever been into a museum and you've seen what they, 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 they called their masterpiece collection? You're a masterpiece. You're God's work. I mean, you're not my work. You're not the church's work. You're not man's work. You're God's handiwork. You're God's masterpiece. The Spirit of the Lord dwells in you if you've given your heart to him. Notice the rest of it. It says, he created us anew in Christ Jesus. In other words, we were born again. We, when we gave our hearts to Christ, he made us brand new people. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, don't let that get by you. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Ephesians 1 tells us, now listen, look at me, follow this, listen. Ephesians 1 tells us that God loved us before the foundation of the world, before he created Adam and Eve, before he created the heavens and the earth. God loved you before the foundation of the world. He had a plan for your life. And even though he created the world very good and we sinned against God and this crisis came into our world that brought the violence, the pain, the hunger, the suffering. When God created you, he made you a brand new creation in Christ so you could do the good that God planned for you before the foundation of the world. We bring the goodness of God into the planet today. Somebody say amen. We bring God's goodness as we serve him and love him. But doing good also, and notice the, the emphasis on the word I'm using, requires, requires a life glowing with the Holy Spirit's power. Now, I know that's kind of maybe just a little bit difficult to say. I had a little bit of difficulty writing it because I wanted to write it like a life empowered by the Holy Spirit, a life powered. I mean, I kept thinking of all these other ways to say it. But the verse of Scripture that I kept looking at and going back to it's this word aglow. And I was like, how do I help the church see this? And I'll tell you, I had the perfect illustration at Christmas. All of our family was home. Our grandchildren were here. Everybody was gathered around the table. My wife had been busy here at the church. She'd been busy preparing our home, getting everything ready. When everybody was there, I looked at Becky one evening, and her face was glowing. I mean, literally glowing. I know I love her, and I know I can see that, but I saw in her face a shine. I saw in her face a glow. She had her children and her grandchildren around her, and there we were celebrating and loving and laughing and feasting together because of the goodness of God. That's what I mean, a life that's a glow in the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, never lag in zeal and in earnest endeavor, but be aglow and burning with the Spirit, serving the Lord. Say that with me. Be aglow and burning with the Spirit. Say it again. Be aglow and burning with the Spirit, serving the Lord. You know, they say that D.L. Moody, before he would preach, he would get by himself, and he said, I would pray myself on fire so that other men's hearts might be set on fire. 
There's something to be said about starting your day in prayer, asking God to fuel that fire in you, starting your day in the Word, asking God to fuel that fire in you. But that brings us to a difficult question that I have to talk about this morning, especially for those of you that might be listening in, and maybe you're not a Christian, because I want to be honest here, and here's the thing. A few years ago, atheists started a campaign in the United States, if you're watching from overseas, in the United States, they started a campaign that says, you don't need God to do good. Well, that's true. You don't need God to do good. But there's a reason for that. The reason you can do good is because God is good to all. The reason you can do good is because God gives the sun and the rain, as Jesus says, to the just and the unjust. God showers his love and his mercy. God gives his goodness to all every single day. God even loves his enemies. God calls us to love and bless our enemies. God calls us to do good to our enemies. Now, it's not good works that save us. And you're going to hear me say this every week, and this may become a little bit mind-numbing in the series. When we're talking about doing good, we're not saved by good works. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to through the decades who have said to me, oh, I know I'm ready for heaven because I'm a good person. My goodness will never save me. If I depended on my goodness, I would bust hell wide open and so would you. I don't mean that to be insulting, but our goodness isn't what saves us. It was the blood that Jesus shed for us. It was Christ giving his life for you and I. And when we believe in him and trust in him, he forgives us of our sins and then empowers us to do good. Not because of our reputation, not because we want people to think well of us, not even because good returns to us. We just do good because we love God. You see, God's grace is upon everyone. But here's the difference. I don't want you to hear me. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I have the power to excel in goodness. You and I have the power to never lag in zeal when it comes to goodness because we have a power source within us. On my hip, I've got this tiny little receiver here that helps me while I'm preaching, but it has batteries in it. And generally after the second service, the batteries are just about totally depleted and have to be recharged to be put back in for another service. Here's the secret. The Holy Spirit who lives within us never runs out of power. It's why the Bible says, don't miss this, the Bible says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and he went about doing good. It's why Jesus said to us, wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because you will be empowered to do good. Who could refuse such an offer to have that kind of power? I remember as a young person in high school, one of our <clears throat> science teachers telling us that whoever could discover the, the, the solution, whoever could solve the problem of perpetual power would be the richest and most powerful person in the world. Of course, that's never been discovered because the perpetual power is in Christ and in Christ alone, and he lives inside of you and me. So it's why Romans 12, 11, if you'll say it again with me, never lag in zeal and an earnest endeavor, but be aglow and burning with the Spirit serving the Lord. And then doing good means that I must learn to see people as God does. And I got to tell you, that's been the challenge of my life. 
learning to see people the way God does, learning to love people the way God does. You've often heard me say here at Woodland, you know, don't lock into a ministry until you've experimented. Don't lock into a small group until you've visited. Because it may not be the ministry you want to do. It may not even be the people you want to hang out with. It doesn't mean you don't don't love them or like them. It's just, you know, if you're not a football fan, you're not going to enjoy hanging out with a bunch of people that love football. If you're not a musically inclined person, you're not going to enjoy hanging out with a bunch of musicians while they're jamming. You know, you just, there's this sense. But I'm not talking about affinity groups. I'm talking about learning to see people the way God does. July 5th, 1975, I had one of those divine encounters that changed my life. I haven't had many of them, but this was one of them. I was standing at a place, Becky and I were at uh, Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was standing at a place called Lover's Leap. It's a beautiful place in Rock City. You can see seven states on a clear day. And I was looking down, I could see an interstate highway, and because it was July 5th, there was a lot of crowds, and I I remember looking down, and it it was just a brief moment, but all of a sudden, I knew that the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. He says, you see a mass of people, but I see every hurting heart. I see every holy heart. I see every good heart. I see every evil heart. I see everyone as an individual, and I want you to learn to see people the way I see people. And it, it, that was just, just that moment. It wasn't a, you know, I didn't have chill bumps. As a matter of fact, I didn't even tell anybody about it for a long time. It was just one of those defining moments in my life. And I knew that was a moment that God spoke into my life. It's changed me. I never look at stats, whether I get them from the church or with the township. I never look at stats as just numbers anymore. But when I look at stats, I see people. It doesn't matter what it is. When I look at those numbers, I ask the Lord, help me to translate this into lives, into families, into people, into children. And when I look at that, sometimes I find myself praying over these reams of material that I get. Lord, Open the eyes of my community. Open the eyes of this subdivision. Open the eyes of this business community. Open their eyes to the goodness of Jesus Christ and help us as a congregation to be a light to them. And then I just begin to imagine really great things. What would it be like if our whole community all of a sudden fell so in love with Jesus Christ and they loved his word so much? What would our community be like? There are not enough churches in Down River to hold everybody that would be there. There's almost a half a million people in Down River. But that's the kind of way I want you to think in this series because that's God's plan is to reach our community. Jesus said, and let me go back to those funerals. Jesus says, those who keep my word will never experience death. There was a lot of grieving, as there always is at a funeral. I remember talking and sharing, and I, I hope this resonates with your spirit. You see, Jesus didn't see death the way you and I look at death. Death is not our friend. Death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. Death is not your friend. Don't give up. Fight. But Jesus says that God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. 
And so when I buried a lady this week who's not been able to come to church for a long, long time, when she died, as we say, when she died, her body just quit working. Her husband says, she loves Woodland Church. She loves Pastor Clanton. Call Pastor Clanton. You see, what I could tell her family, what I can tell you is that she is with Christ. This live stream ministry that we have is ministering to countless people. I looked in her Bible and there were notes from our, our, our sermon notes that were there in her Bible. But I, what I could tell her family is this body just quit working. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. She immediately went into the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. My father, Becky's father, your loved ones that have passed away, they are now in the presence of Christ. They are healed and they are whole, but we are awaiting that wonderful day when the body will be resurrected again and our body and spirit and soul will be reunited because God sees life differently than we see life. Unfortunately, many people don't even get this truth that I'm preaching to you until they die. I am convinced that so many have died fighting, trying to hang on to life. As I told one man that I was talking with, planning a funeral this week, the church used to practice what we called the Latin word is osmoriende, where we prepare for death. Where people prepared so they'd be ready to meet the Lord, so they left a legacy with their family. Fathers and mothers wanted to leave wisdom for their children. Children wanted to gather the wisdom of life from their, from their elders before they passed away. You see, when I learn to see people as God sees them, look at me, don't miss this. When somebody dies, that soul continues to exist for eternity, forever and ever, either in the presence of God in heaven or in the agonies of hell. And I must learn to see people the way God sees them. And I must learn what it means to do good. So that if somebody asks about Russell, if somebody asks about Mary, if somebody asks about Jen, they will speak like my friends on planes and trains have said, oh, I like Jesus. Jesus was good. And because Jesus is good, the church should be good. Can you say amen? amen? Because Jesus is good, we should be good and do good. In 1 Samuel 26, 23, maybe this will illustrate it. It's an interesting passage until you get the whole story. So let me read it to you. It's God's business to decide what to do with each of us in regard to what's right and who's loyal. God put your life in my hands today, but I wasn't willing to lift a finger against God's anointed. You go, Pastor, what's that all about? Let me see if I can refresh your memory. Those of you that are Bible students, you've already jumped ahead to the story. David has an enemy, an enemy that wants to kill him, an enemy that is insanely jealous of him, an enemy that has already multiple times tried to murder David. An enemy that has robbed from him. An enemy that has lied about him. Most of us, we would despise, we would hate this individual who tried to do. Most of us would have done anything we can to try and get rid of this person. 
But here's David, who's running from this man, who's hunting him down, King Saul, hunting him down, and all of a sudden, Saul is in the same hiding spot that David's in, but he doesn't know that he's there. And so David's friend says, here's your opportunity. Kill him, slay him. Then this will all be over. David says he's not going to do that because it's God's business to decide what to do. Vengeance doesn't belong to us, but goodness belongs to us. Hate doesn't belong to us, but goodness belongs to us. Evil doesn't belong to us, but good belongs to us. And by, the Bible says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is power in doing good. And when the Holy Spirit is within you, there's even greater power to do good. And so David cuts a piece of King Saul's garment And later when Saul has left, David confronts him and says, just so he'll know he wasn't lying, your life was in my hand. Well, how tempting it is when somebody has hurt us to gossip about them. How tempting it is when we don't like someone to withhold good from them. It's why the Bible says, do not withhold good when it's within your power to do so. This church during our Joyful Noise Christmas offering, has done incredible. Listen, you just provided a home for an entire family in Nepal. Paid for. We've already sent the money in. You just provided some of the resources that are needed to repair the water systems at the Happy Horizon home in Cebu, Philippines, where children that we've rescued from sexual trafficking and sexual slavery are being given a home and education and clothing and meals and a place to live and and growing up so that they'll have skills and been rescued from lives of such. I've not been there yet, but I've been to these other homes where we've rescued children. I've seen the scarred ones, the blind ones, the broken ones that the sexual traffickers have done to them when they have not wanted to go along with the horrible, immoral things, the evil things they wanted to do. I've held those babies that were like little wildcats that that people had abused their bodies for pleasure and for profit. That's the good that you've done in their lives. You've helped this week restore homes and churches in Kentucky where the the tornado just came through. The money's been given because it was in our power to do good, and as a congregation, we stepped up. And if you haven't given to the Joyful Noise Christmas offering, please, this week, before January 31, give and share in this offering. Because as you do, you're doing what Jesus did. You're empowering the church in his name to do what Jesus did. I'm going to ask my wife to come on up to the keyboard. And because each week I've tried to pray a prayer of blessing over you during this COVID crisis, and it will be just the way we do church from now on. We have multiple people out this morning who have COVID. We have many people sick with it. We have some in the hospital with COVID. And if you're watching, I want you to receive this blessing. But I just decided recently I would break down the phrases of the ironic blessing. What do they mean? And I want you to stand to receive the blessing before I pray. When we say the words of the scripture that God told us to pray, the Lord bless you. I want you to listen carefully. To say the Lord bless you means that you're praying that God will bring constant goodness into your life. 
And because God is the source of goodness, his constant goodness in your life empowers you to do good. When we say, the Lord keep you, we're praying that the Lord would be a shield round about you, above you, beneath you, that God would go before you and behind you. We're praying God's protection upon your life. We're asking that the very blood of Jesus Christ, the bloodline that Satan cannot cross, be applied to your life and to your family. And when we say, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you, I want you to remember that image of Becky. Because all the good that she had done as a mother, as a praying mother, as a teaching mother, as a sacrificing mother, as a homemaker, as a socializer, as a Bible teacher, as a prayer warrior, as one who comforted and healed, as one that was there through the nights when they were sick, as one that prayed every single day, God, bring the right woman, the right man into my children's lives. Her face was aglow because her children were gathered. Her grandchildren were gathered. And when you're in this room, together, God's face shines upon us. Now, don't let that pass you by because when God's face shines, life happens. When God's face shines, goodness grows. When God's face shines, there's healing, there's prosperity, there's abundance. And when God's face shines, and I didn't have time to tell the first service this, but listen, when God's face shines, that means we can share the glory of God with one another. When I watched Becky, in a few moments I found myself just slipping over, putting my arm around her, and I said these words, it's worth it, isn't it? It's worth it, isn't it? And I believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all agreed. You were worth what Christ did at Calvary. Go forth and do good in the name of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I'm asking you right now, would you bless us? Would you constantly cause good to flow into our lives? Lord, would you keep us? I plead the blood of Jesus over our church, our congregation. I pray for healing for those that are sick. Lord, I pray today for provision for those who are hurting. And I pray for even more creative ways for us to do good in our community and the world. And finally, Lord, I pray, make your face shine upon us. May Woodland be a house of bread, a house of prayer, and a house of abundant life, I pray. And Lord, if there's anyone that's listening right now that hasn't crossed the line, would you speak to their hearts, even as I look in this camera lens, Lord, and let them know that when you look at them, you say the cross was worth it. Friend, I'm asking you this morning, consider what your life is without Jesus, 
and what your life can be like when Jesus is living in your life, when your sins are forgiven. You may be a very good person, but you know what it means to lag. You know what it means to lose your zeal. You know what it means to wonder about eternity. Is there life after death? Yes, there is. But when we die, it's just that the body quits working. We go immediately into the presence of God. And I want you to go the way me and so many others like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa are going, and that is through the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. So would you invite him into your heart right now? Just pray this prayer with me. Say, Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you for giving your only son to die for my sins. I don't understand it all, but I know this morning I want to give up everything to follow you, Christ. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Stick with me for just a moment. Pastor Corey is going to tell you how you can get more information. I want you to be seated. I want to walk through the growth work with, with you real quickly. I want you to read John chapter 10, verse 7. You can be seated. John 10, verse 7 through 18 this week. I want you to look with me at real quick, 1 Peter 3, 12. Put that up on the screen, and let's say this together. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. Let's say it again. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. How many of you want God to listen to your prayers? Yeah, we want God to hear and answer our prayers. Notice what it says, over those who do right. So here's just three simple things I want you to do this week. Number one, look at your outline. It's right there. What do you love about Jesus? Remember what I asked my new friends, strangers that I talked to? What do you love about Jesus? And then when they begin to tell me what they love about Jesus, oftentimes they tell me something I've never thought of. That's just how great and how wonderful Jesus is. I want you to write down just as many things as you can think of. What do you love about Jesus? Number two, name one thing you can do this week to start following Jesus more nearly. Now, I've listed several things here. Maybe you could, if you're a student, you could help your friends with their homework. You could pray for the children that I talked to you about at Happy Horizons Ranch. If you want more information about that, email me. I'll send you more information about that in the Philippines. This week, uh, buy coffee for one of your coworkers. And just, you don't have to get religious about it. Just say, hey, I thought about you. I wanted to buy you a cup of coffee. Or if you know they like a latte, buy them a latte and just give it to them. Just be kind, be good. And then do what I'm, now I do it on my phone. I don't carry a little card, but carry a three by five card and carry some prayer requests this week. Maybe for people in our church who have the, the uh, COVID virus, maybe for people in our church that are grieving from death, maybe you would just join me in prayer and maybe making an extra gift for the Cebu Ranch. And then the third thing is name one habit you need to make and one you need to stop. Name a good, now I'm not talking about a resolution. I'm talking about a lifelong habit, one habit. Maybe it's reading your Bible five minutes every morning. Maybe it's praying every day. Maybe it's starting to journal or maybe it's, maybe it's just getting up and making coffee and bringing it to your wife in the morning or something like a good habit. But then make, name a habit that you need to break, okay? Maybe you need to stop oversleeping. Maybe you need to, you know, I'm not, just name a habit you need to break. And remember, <clears throat> it takes about six months for a habit to get ingrained, and you just do it. You never think about brushing your teeth. You never think about washing your face. You just do it. 
But let this be encouragement to you. The Bible says, put it up, 2 Peter 3, 9, God is patient. Don't get discouraged if you miss a day. Just pick it up and start again. God is patient. Say it with me. God is patient. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Welcome, Pastor Corey, as he comes to talk to you a little bit more. Thank you, Pastor. If you prayed that prayer today with Pastor, we have a book that we'd love to give to you. If you're here today, just stop by the crossing, ask for it. We'd be glad to give it to you. But if you're watching online, if you would email us at info at woodland.church, let us know you prayed that prayer. We can be praying for you as well, and we'd be glad to send it to you. And so please let us know. Also as well, um, don't forget... Uh, to give. And as you're leaving today, we'll have an usher back at the back door with a basket so that you can give your tithes and offerings. And if you're watching online, don't forget to give online as well. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.